Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Freedom, freedom, and freedom. Today's date is October 20th, 2021, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Take the Long Med Home for Cellulitis. Our guest skeptic this week is Dr. Lauren Westerfer. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, Bay State. She's the co-founder of Foamcast and a pulmonary embolism and implementation science researcher. Dr. Westerfer serves as the social media editor and research methodology editor for Annals of Emergency Medicine. And Lauren recently won the SAEM FOMED Award. Welcome back to the SGEM, Lauren. So happy to be here, Ken. Well, it's been a bit of time, not that long a time, but a bit of time, so much time that your family has grown once again. And the last time you were on the show, two children, now you've got a third child. When that happened in our household, we had to switch from the man-to-man defense to the zone defense. I was saying, okay, you take the toy room, I'll take the kitchen. How's life these days? Yeah, I mean, we were already kind of on the zone defense anyways, often doing something around the house or working during the pandemic. And my wife would have both kids or I would have both kids. So adding one more kid into the mix, it hasn't been that difficult, but we'll wait till they're teenagers. Well, people aren't here to listen to us talk about our child rearing experiences. They're here to talk about a case. So can you give us a case presentation? A 46-year-old male with a history of diabetes controlled on metformin presents with erythema and warmth to his right lower leg measuring 27 centimeters by 10 centimeters for the past four days. The patient, he's neurovascularly intact and there's no evidence of deep venous thrombosis when you ultrasound him. He's got no fever and his white blood cell count is 12,500. Well, thanks for setting the table. Now let's go through some background information. Emergency department visits for skin and soft tissue infections or SSTIs, are common and increasing. These types of infections include cellulitis and abscesses. The SGEM has a couple of episodes on the treatment of cellulitis with antibiotics. And the treatment of abscesses has been covered a few more times on the SGEM as well. The latest episode looked at the loop technique to drain uncomplicated abscesses. The result was no statistical difference in failure rates between the loop and standard packing groups. Our conclusion was to consider the loop drainage technique on your next uncomplicated abscess. Now, the vast majority of patients can be managed as outpatients. However, the average length of stay for inpatient care is one week and costs close to, and I have to put my finger near the corner of my mouth when I say this, $5 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B, and that's U.S. dollars. Now, thankfully, the mortality rate for hospitalized patients with skin and soft tissue infections is very low. It's less than 0.05%. And thinking about why these patients are managed as inpatient, the only reason for inpatient management in about 40% of patients was to provide parenteral antibiotics or intravenous antibiotics. And so this has led to greater interest in long-acting parenteral antibiotics as a positive alternative to admission. So what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's SGEM episode? Does the use of a clinical pathway that includes a dose of intravenous dalbavancin in emergency department patients with skin and soft tissue infections reduce hospitalizations? And the reference to try to answer this question. 
It's Talonet All Pathway with single-dose long-acting intravenous antibiotic reduces emergency department hospitalizations in patients with skin infections. This is Academic Emergency Medicine, October 2021. Oh, yes, it is hot off the press. Now, typically we go through a PICO, but I've added a T to season number 10. So we're going to do population intervention comparison outcome and the T stands for trial design. So what was the population that was included in this study? Here they included patients 18 years and older who had abscess, cellulitis, or wound infection believed to be or confirmed to be due to gram-positive bacteria, and the area of infection had to be at least 75 centimeters squared. Now there were a number of exclusion criteria, and I'll list those in the show notes. What was the specific intervention? It was a clinical pathway that included a single dose of intravenous dalbavancin, which was 1,500 milligrams for those with normal renal function or reduced dose uh, for reduced creatinine clearance, in conjunction with telephone follow-up call 24 hours after the visit and a follow-up appointment 48 to 72 hours after emergency department discharge. And what did they compare it to, Lauren? They compared it to what was usual care pre-implementation. So before they implemented this new clinical pathway, they compared it to what was usual care then. All right, let's go through their outcomes. What was the primary outcome of interest? Uh, the proportion hospitalized at the time of initial care in the population that received at least one antibiotic dose. And their secondary outcomes? Hospitalizations through 44 days Healthcare resource utilization, which was things like length of stay, level of care, major surgical interventions, ICU admissions, as well as things like adverse events, and some patient-oriented outcomes as well, like satisfaction, work productivity, quality of life stuff. All right, and what's the trial design here? So this was a before and after observational study at 11 U.S. academic-affiliated emergency departments. Well, this is the October SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have the pleasure of the lead author being on the show. Dr. David Talon is considered an authority in acute infections that result in severe morbidity and mortality. He is currently on the faculty of the Department of Emergency Medicine and Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Disease at All of You UCLA Medical Center. Dr. Talon also serves on the editorial board of Annals of Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, David. Well, thanks, Ken, and it's nice to meet you, Lauren. Just one update, um, I, I did move from Olive UCLA to main campus, so Ronald Reagan UCLA, where I've been, I've been there for um, over two years. Just to make sure everyone knows where to look for me, in case they're upset by my research, they know where to find me. Many listeners um, may not be familiar with dalbavancin. Can you tell us a little bit more about this drug, like how it works, the class it's in, and some side effects we should look out for? Yeah, I was surprised in the introduction you said that we'd like to learn more about long-acting drugs or there's more focus on them, because I actually think many people don't even know that uh, drugs like dalbavancin exist. This is a crazy different type of drug. It's a Parenteral drug, it's a drug given intravenously. The um, dalbavancin might give you a clue as to kind of what class of antibiotic it's related to. Um, it's closest to the uh, initial structure and in the infamous zosin molecule. 
the the vancomycin and so dalbabansin vancomycin maybe you can you know you could remember it that they're sort of close so it it's active against gram positive organisms it is a i'm told a lipoglycoprotein vancomycin is considered a glycoprotein and there's something about its structural differences that allow it to be highly protein bound very lipophilic have a very large uh, volume of distribution look i'm talking like a pharmacist now and have a crazy long half-life and so as a single dose parenteral dose one dose you provide levels in the blood and the tissues that far exceed those things called MICs, minimal inhibitory concentrations of typical gram positives like staph and strep. That's what we're talking. And so uh, this is this is kind of like a magic bullet, right? One shot, you're done. Um, and, and it's been studied and trialed and compared against, you know, standard antibi antibiotics that are given every day or much more frequently. And it uh, has a good safety profile. It's renally cleared, so you have to make some adjustment for people with credit clearances below 30. I'm not aware that it has any effects on like QT, and it's clean in terms of drug interactions. With and, and so uh, that's that's what we have. But it is a it is a, it's an expensive drug, and so um, and, you know, we'll talk about that s some more. But the idea is to the extent that hospitalizations the are only justified by our perceived need for the patient to receive IV antibiotics, uh, you could give this drug and send the person home and avoid the hospitalization. And that was what this study, this before usual care compared to after, where everyone with sort of a high-risk skin soft tissue infection got a dose of dalbabansin in the ED. So, you know, that's what the study was about, to see if this affected how people decided whether or not to bring a patient into the hospital. Well, it certainly could address the issue of adherence or concordance with the therapy when they just receive one dose of the therapy and then head home. You cannot fail to comply <laughs> with this drug, okay? It's, after it's given to you, it's, it's hard to screw it up. Now, you know, you know, this gets into all sorts of issues like, well, if it's, you might lose your own arm, maybe you should use the other one to take, take your oral antibiotics much more carefully. Um, you know, so the issues of personal responsibility, but there are absolutely many patients for whom we'd worry if, um, you know, they forgot a dose or, you know, maybe they didn't have the capability or support to make sure that they had adhered to, uh, let's say, an oral antibiotic regimen or follow up. So this gives you, you know, some greater peace of mind as well. This that which is part of our justification for putting people in the hospital. So before we get into the critical appraisal of the study, could you give your author's conclusions? All right, Ken, our conclusion was as follows. <laughs> Implementation of an ED uh, skin and soft tissue infection clinical pathway for patient selection follow-up that included use of a single dose, long-acting IV antibiotic was associated with a significant reduction in hospitalization rate for stable patients with moderately severe infections. 
Thank you, David. Uh, sit back, relax. Lauren and I will go through a quality checklist for observational studies, talk about some of the key results, and then bring you back to talk nerdy. Lauren, you ready to go on that checklist? Oh, of course. Always ready to get nerdy. All right. So first question, did the study address a clearly focused issue? Yes. Did the authors use an appropriate method to answer their question? Yes. Do you think the cohort was recruited in an acceptable way? Yes. Do you think the exposure was accurately measured to minimize bias? I do. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Have the authors identified all important confounding factors? I'm not sure about this one. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yeah. How precise are the results? They were pretty precise. Do you believe David and his authors? I believe them, yes. Can the results be applied to your local population? Uh, to my local population, I'm unsure. I think that this is dependent on the resources around it, particularly regarding the follow-up and the availability of the drug. So unsure about this one, Ken. And the 11th and final question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? Yeah, I think it does. Okay, let's run through the results. There were over 3,000 patients screened in the before and in the after phase of this study. Only 5% were eligible for inclusion. The median age of participants was in their late 40s, two-thirds were male, and over 80% had cellulitis. What was the key result, Lauren? Less patients were hospitalized after the implementation of the new clinical pathway that included a single dose of the long-acting IV antibiotic and follow-up. Yeah, and that was the primary outcome, hospitalization rate. So what were the actual numbers? What did they find? So in the usual care group, 38.5% were hospitalized before the rollout of that pathway, compared with only 17.6% after the implementation of that clinical pathway that included IV dabamancin. Yeah, and that gave you an absolute difference of 20.8%. How about the secondary outcomes? The first one, that was the hospitalization through 44 days. The absolute difference here in hospitalizations was 16.1% out to 44 days. And how about the length of stay? Did it impact that in any way? Yeah, it was, it was lower in the clinical pathway group by about a day. Okay. And how about infection-related surgeries that were required? Uh, 0.6% versus 3.3%. And how about ICU admission rates? 1.9% uh, versus 0.7%. All right, let's talk about adverse events. Mild, moderate, and severe. What were they like? They were all a little more common in the clinical pathway group. Were there any deaths recorded in this study? No, there were not. And how about the patient-related outcomes? Uh, you can find these in the appendix or the supplemental materials accompanying the study. All right, David, you've been on the SGEM before, so you know we love talking nerdy. So we have my favorite number of questions for you, five. Are you ready to go, David? I'm probably not. You ask very hard questions. I probably won't get through 
three of them, but let's give it a shot. You know. Let's see what we're, let's see how far we get. The first question is about inclusion and exclusion criteria. The patient flow diagram, which is figure one, does not list the reasons for exclusion. So it's difficult to know why patients weren't included and if they were different than those who were excluded. Do you have any data on the characteristics of the excluded patients? And could this have led to some selection bias? Well, here again, the paper is challenging in that you have to read it um, and the supplement to understand all the exclusions, <laughs> um, which are clear. They're not on the flow diagram. Now, a, another good question. I don't want to say a better question because you're in charge. You know, might, might be the one, uh, might be attempting to know all those who were eligible, but somehow didn't get identified and the reasons and if they were different. So we don't have that. Um, we didn't have the res full resources and budget to do that. So, the, you know, there always could be some uh, bias that's associated with selection or participation. And I can't comment on that. But we do have a very clear description of what type of patients we enrolled. Basically, to give the audience a clear idea, these are people who have, this is the sweet spot we were looking for. They have infections that look bad enough where you and I might consider putting them in the hospital. And we'll talk about what bad means. But who are not so bad where it would be clearly obvious they need to come into the OR. You thought they had necrotizing fasciitis. This isn't the type of patient we're looking for. Or you have a patient with a skin infection who's in DKA. We're not sending that patient home, right? So th this is what we're looking for. And that's how we designed it. So you'll read in the exclusions when you get to that, you know, about those types of exclusions, which left this group and the size, let's talk about bad, the size of their cellulitis was decent, right? And so, um, and half or more, half or less, and many had comorbidities like diabetes, but that were stable, right? And none were immunocompromised. So this is the group that we're talking about. Another uh, topic that I wanted to talk about here was the study design. So uh, with this implementation of the clinical pathway, your team used a before and after or pre-post study design to investigate the association between this new clinical pathway, the implementation of that, and hospitalization for patients with these skin and soft tissue infections, largely cellulitis. One drawback to this type of design is th there's possible contamination of the treatment effect by confounders, such as other system or local factors sort of at the local ED level. Um, and, you know, it's not clear how much various aspects of this clinical pathway um, contribute to that treatment effect. So, for example, how much does the assurance of close outpatient follow-up or education contribute to these lower hospitalization rates? What are your thoughts there? Well, that you're tricky, Lauren, because you squeezed in two hard questions, and what you said was just going to be the next one question. Yeah, I mean... We always think of you know randomized trials. They eliminate the chance that the you know the patients are different and providers are you know different and the time periods are different. But let, let's think about how to do this as a randomized trial. This is a new drug. It, it wasn't being used. Many of you have never even heard of it until this. Right? And so now the providers start to learn about using this drug, and they start to see. Let's say they start to see outcomes associated. So then that cont contaminates, you know, the experiment, right? So that's 
part of the difficulty with a randomized trial. Now, if we had enough money for this, we might have done a cluster randomized trial where we actually pick centers who don't know what's going on at the other centers and can't learn, but we didn't have that budget. So we did a pre-post design and pre-post design, you're right, is has other potential limitations. Like, let's say that between 2018 and 2019, that all of a sudden there was a big push to um, minimize hospitalization at all these centers, right? They, they probably said, Ken, why can't be, we be more like Canada? And we're like, okay, let's, let's really try to not hospitalize low-risk chest pain patients, low-risk pneumonia patients. We're going to treat some more people with PE as outpatients, like Laura talks about, right? So let's say there were secular trends. That's possible to be a confounder. When we did time series analysis, we didn't find that. What we, what I had wanted to do, you know, like one of these things is like, what would you have done differently was to have a control group of like pneumonia patients to see if their rates of admission changed over time too. We're pretty sure, we feel, feel pretty certain from our sensitivity analyses that that didn't happen, but it's possible. You're exactly right. And then you asked this sneaky second question, which was, uh, what about the extra follow-up that we guaranteed in the Dalva Vanson post period. You might go, well, why'd you do that? Well, we did that because this was kind of an experiment with drugs and patients who had never been exposed to it and who we had to get their informed consent. And because of that, we felt an obligation for patient safety. But it's not like a whole lot happened. They got a telephone call and they got a visit. And it wasn't like, you know, they suddenly got a bigger, stronger dose of or an extra dose of antibiotic. They didn't. The other side of it is twice as many people got hospitalized and their follow-up was ex ex especially close and it happened more often in the usual care group. So I don't think that's a big factor, but you could wonder. And that's the reason we did it. Well, I get to jump in with the third question and that sort of builds a bit on that second question and that's about the Hawthorne effect. In this study, clinicians in the intervention period knew they were being studied. It is possible that some portion of the treatment effect was the result of the clinicians being aware that their management of skin and soft tissue infections was being evaluated and that discharge would be encouraged. And we did not disclose the actual intent of the study in either period equally. Best I can tell, the providers were blinded to the actual intent of the study. We did tell them that we were looking at patterns of care and outcomes associated with the care of these patients, but nothing more than that. So only a smart skeptic like you might have figured it out. The next thing is sort of about impact. The, the pathway demonstrated this huge difference in for the primary outcome of hospitalizations, an absolute difference of 21%, which is enormous. But when looking sort of about who was included in this study, um, who actually made it after eligibility and the exclusions and was screened, only 5% of those that were screened were eligible um, and enrolled in the study. So most patients who presented with maybe skin soft tissue infections, the data might not directly apply. Do you think that this uh, limits the impact of this intervention, this clinical pathway in a significant way? So Lauren, right, it was a big effect. It actually was greater than 20 percentage points to be accurate uh, or absolute difference of uh, that percent. 
And it did apply to a small percentage of all patients that come in with SSTI. Absolutely. Um, what we're talking about here, just as a frame of reference, are those who might be admitted, who could, a subset, possibly go home. So we ain't talking about people with DKA and skin and soft tissue infections or rule-out necroteriotizing fasciitis or who have a concomitant, you know, osteomyelitis or something like that. So yes, this is what we're talking about. But it turns out that 15% of all skin and soft tissue infection patients who are admitted uh, account for a lot of inpatient care and a huge amount of cost, right? And so, yes, it was a third or so of that 15% group who we admit who might not need to be admitted at all with a different type of antibiotic strategy. So, I don't, and I don't think we're selling it as any, anything differently. I think part of the question comes from the potential for indication creep. So you're absolutely right that you're talking about a narrow group of people that you're thinking, should I be admitting them? Not the slam dunk. They're coming in. We all know they're coming in. They've got all these comorbidities. They're in DKA. It's neck fash. They're going to the OR. That's one set. And then you've got all these people that, you know, they have a small infection. It's a small cellulitis. You've lanced open an abscess. That's, that's the other big chunk. And then you've got this smaller part that you've got to think about. Hmm. Probably I'd be admitting them. I wish there was another option. Here's another option that can decrease that by 21%, an absolute difference of 21%. But the indication creep is, hey, you've got cellulitis. Here's your shot. Bye-bye to that big group that wouldn't be considered for hospitalization. So I think that's where that impact was question was coming from, David. Yeah, well, again, it's not the it's not the focus of the study. It would be the implications, which I'm glad you bring up. And indication creep um, is something to be concerned about. But the other thing that's really, I, I think the thing that's most important is that there's many people who do well with getting their parental antibiotics and not being in the hospital. You know, the hospital, there's other things potentially that could be beneficial, you know, such as having your leg up, such as, uh, um, you know, and, and people helping you with your meals and things like that. And, you know, all sorts of stuff that, you know, the hospital could give value added, but it didn't seem to be important enough such that the net effect on hospitalization was really decreased by being able to select these people appropriately, follow them, admittedly, the way we did, and guarantee that they got their full course of therapy with just one IV shot. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is an expensive treatment. Um, you can make justifications versus um, offsetting the charge of hospitalization, which is also crazy, crazy expensive. But it's also sort of a test of concept that, um, you know, these drugs could have tremendous utility. And eventually, you know, hopefully their costs will come down, they'll, they'll become non-proprietary, and there'll be more of them, which, which I think is, is great. It means we have more money to, to take care of other things where uh, we need more money for that. And, and people can get out of the hospital and back to work sooner too. 
the final question that we had for you in our five nerdy questions gets back to the quality checklist for observational studies. And that's when we asked, can the results be applied to your local population? And I guess the answer is yes, no, or unsure in our checklist. So we say unsure, but the EBM answer would be, yeah, it all depends. This study was conducted in 11 academic affiliated EDs in the U.S. And the U.S. has a much different healthcare system than other countries like listeners in Canada, the UK, Australia. Do you think, David, that this data could be applied outside the U.S. system? Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, again, uh, you know, there's different ways of financing healthcare, which absolutely would impact weighing sort of the pros and cons of the strategy. But I think it further demonstrates that one of the common reasons, and I don't think it's necessarily or essentially different here versus where you are in Canada or any place, but one of the things we believe is that there will be patients who we believe will benefit from intravenous therapy, whether it's the patients who's mentally handicapped or not socially supported or in some vulnerable group, it makes them less likely to comply right, with outpatient, usual outpatient therapy, or it's a patient who we have come to believe that their infections are so severe that having uh, parenteral type antibiotics on board, we believe leads to better outcomes. So I think that principle can apply across the board. And every one of you, no matter where you work, can or learn, are gonna see people with significant cellulitis infections where you consider whether or not to put them in the hospital. And if you see those patients, which I believe everybody does, then I think what we describe here um, adds to your knowledge. Yeah, we try in our area not to hospitalize patients, even if you know it would be in the realm of, oh, should we be hospitalizing them? Because we have a very robust system where they can come back for once a day, IV antibiotics through a specified pathway. And also, we have a robust home care system where they'll get a visiting nurse come and deliver the antibiotics and have that continuity. So I, I don't end up admitting a lot of um, cellulitic, uh, you know, because it's typically cellulitis, uh, patients just for parenteral antibiotics. Well, you have the luxury of being able to follow people for um daily visits through your emergency department. I think Larden would tell you in many places, you know, probably UMass, UCLA, all of you, like we're having a really hard time with boarding and waiting. And um, if anything, we're trying to discourage our consultants and specialists from, from utilizing our area. And, and certainly we don't have the, the liberty ourselves to make the emergency department a follow-up clinic. Only in Canada do you have that luxury. Well, I'm interested in finding out uh, what your experience is, Lauren, and uh, how you think that the external validity would apply on the East Coast, I guess, of the United States. Yeah, I think I think that this is hard because the first thing that I I read was this 24 to this 24 hour follow up call and 48 hour to 72 hour follow up call, and I was like, that would solve a lot of our hospital admissions to begin with. Because to be honest. 
the added benefit of IV antibiotics when we're admitting a patient versus the safety reassurance that I'm not, I'm not sure which way this patient is going to go. I'm not going to declare themselves. And then knowing that a large proportion of my patients um, in Springfield, Massachusetts, they don't have primary care or they don't have somebody that can see them soon um, or they don't have shelter or basic things in which they'd be an ideal candidate for not having to go pick up a script and be one and done with therapy. But at the same time, they don't have somebody to check in on. So I think with regards to that, you know, this this pathway really intrigues me because I want that kind of follow-up for all my patients because when I'm on the fence, it's not just because I'm sold that they need intravenous therapy. It's also that follow-up piece and this kind of uh, deals with both. And so I, I want to emphasize that this protocol did include both. Lauren, you have the strangest New England accent I've ever heard. I'm in Southern New England. Yeah. <laughs> well, Here's what I would ask you, Lauren, since um, your follow-up capabilities seem stretched. When your emergency physicians order a urine culture and the result comes back positive, what do, what do you do with those, those circumstances? We have a follow-up nurse dedicated to urine cultures, blood cultures, and buprenorphine. Okay, so here's a FYI for you. Stop sending all these unnecessary urine cultures for unnecessary urinalyses and repurpose that nurse with all of his or her extra time to giving a patient like this a call so you can avoid an expensive and morbid hospitalization. Problem solved. We're solving problems today. I love it. <laughs> Now, David, is there anything else, you know, we didn't cover in the five questions or that you would like to comment or think that the SGM listeners need to know about your publication specifically or this topic generally? No, I just hope that um, I've answered your questions and not been too much of a wise guy and get, get invited back. I mean, talk about nerds. Like, you're my people, you guys, really. <laughs> I've been doing this a while and I do love clinical research. And I do believe that infectious disease is really, really important in emergency practice. It's sort of been my theme for a long time. My first chief, when I told him that that's you know what I wanted to pursue, he said, "This is a that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard." Because we have infectious disease doctors who can teach us infectious disease. I'm like, dude, at 2 a.m., where are they? And they have absolutely no understanding of the issues that we're challenged with. So the fact that you've shown a little light on you know one part of our research. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you invite me back. And Lauren, it's a pleasure to meet you. Well, we you keep publishing uh, interesting papers. We'll keep bringing you back, David. But now we're going to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. In general, we agree with the author's conclusions. Lauren, can you give us an SGEM bottom line? In hospital systems with access to intravenous dabavancin and the ability to establish expedited telephone and in-person follow-up, this clinical pathway is associated with a decrease in hospitalizations for patients with moderately severe cellulitis. And can you resolve that case you presented at the beginning of this podcast? Yeah, we offer the patient the new long-acting single-dose IV antibiotic and outpatient follow-up, and he's super happy to not need to be admitted to the hospital, eat terrible food, and is discharged home with follow-up instructions. And thank you um, for 
causing a wave of all my listeners who work in kitchens in hospitals to send me, you know, their, yeah, great. Thanks, Lauren. Oh, some, some have great food. Some have great food. Tell me, how are you going to take this uh, paper that's been published on this long-acting IV antibiotic, and how are you going to apply it clinically? So it all depends. The medication is expensive. It costs about $5,000 for the, the one dose. It's unclear if this is a cost-effective strategy, although it might be given the cost of hospitalizations. There could also be a concern with indication creep giving intravenous antibiotics to patients with just very mild cellulitis, um, which could increase expense and antibiotic resistance. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside when you're uh, discharging them? You have a skin infection, and traditionally people are often admitted to the hospital for a couple days to a week to get IV antibiotics when the condition is this severe. We have a new medication. It requires only one dose here in the emergency department, and it's a long-acting antibiotic. You can go home today after the treatment, and we'll give you a call to make sure you're doing okay, and then an in-person follow-up in the next couple of days. So what would you like to do at this point? Get admitted to the hospital or be treated and sent home today? All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last episode, the winner was Dr. Robert McAllister. He's a new grad practicing emergency medicine in Ontario. Rob knew that Plasmalite 148 gets its name from the total milliequivalents included in Plasmalite 148. What's the question this week, Lauren? What is the half-life of Dalbavancin? And if you know the answer to this question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool, skeptical prize. And now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on long-acting antibiotics for cellulitis? What questions do you have for David and his team? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGMHOP or ask them on the SGM blog or do both. The best social media feedback, we will publish it in Academic Emergency Medicine. And don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to AEM can head over to the AEM homepage and get CME credits for this podcast and article. Even if you're not a subscriber to AEM, you can still claim those CME credits for this episode. The content will always be free, but there's a small fee for the CME. Thanks for supporting this free open access knowledge translation project. And thank you, David, for coming back on the SGEM and talking about soft tissue infections once again. Thank you for having me. And now to finish the show, David, can you give us the SGEM tagline? Remember, everybody... Be skeptical of everything you learn, even if you heard it on Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Oh,